passage this morning is James 1, 9 through 12. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James. Deep into the New Testament, if you're with us for the first time, we're in week three in a 419-week series through the book of James. I'm kidding, it's going to be about 24 weeks. Going to take a break around Christmas for an Advent series like we always do. So we're going to stick with tradition here. James 1. If you're on a device, we're in the ESV version. Well, shoot, I can't find it either. So give me a minute here. Well, James has been talking to us about wisdom. Um, The kind of wisdom that comes from above. It's where we really got the title for this series, um, which is a particular kind of wisdom and understanding that's different than the kind of wisdom and understanding that the world uh, gives us and wants us to live from. So we want to live with a wisdom that comes from above in James 3.17, which is pure, peaceable, gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial and it's sincere, knowing that when we apply this wisdom, that's what wisdom is. It's knowing what's true and then living out that truth in your life because of the inner transformation that's happening in your heart. So it's, it's not merely just doing the right thing, right? It's not just do the right thing because we can also do the right thing from the wrong motives and the Bible still calls that sin, which is impossibly horrible news for us that just think, man, well, I'm, doing, I'm doing what's right, right? It's like, yeah, but the thing is when the gospel comes in and changes your heart, it allows you to do the right thing from a heart that is being made right, that's been made right and is being made righter. I don't know if that's a word, because of the gospel, because of the Holy Spirit inside of us, if that makes sense. So what James is gonna be sort of leaning us into through the entirety of this book is what does wisdom look like in the life of a Christian? How does it hit all these different areas? And today we're, we're gonna talk a little bit about money and possessions, which is like everybody's favorite topic to talk about to think about, but in fact, what James is saying here is that that's actually a trial in our life. Money and possessions and the lack of money and possessions actually serve as being a trial in our life. And by the way, I was joking, most of us don't like to talk about money. It's awkward for us, right? So we don't like to talk about it very much, but we don't mind thinking about it a lot. We probably don't mind dreaming about it a lot, and we certainly don't mind finding ways to get more of it, right? That's not, I don't say that to shame you as much as I'm just speaking to the reality of the effect that money and wealth and possessions has in our life. But in fact, money is not really the point. And that's what we're going to see here as we, as we read through James. Money is not really the point. In fact, whatever money and possessions uh, that you have, they've been given to you by a generous God to steward or to manage for the sake of God's glory. And by the way, not just for the sake of God's glory, but for the betterment of you and your neighbor through a heart that begins to open up to being more cheerfully generous. Okay? So although money and possessions, they're they're not bad in and of themselves, they're dangerous because our hearts are prone to becoming consumed by this 
idolatrous affection for them. That can form inside of us. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 16, he said, look, you can't serve God and money. Those two things are like oil and water. They don't mix. Meaning those of us with more wealth and possessions or those of us with less wealth and possessions have the challenge of not trusting in wealth to be the functional God that is responsible to save us or care for our souls. Proverbs 13, seven says, one pretends to be rich yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor yet has great wealth. And so this is sort of like a, a heading that James is gonna be unpacking for us. It's a, it's a paradox. It's something that on one hand sounds contradictory, but is actually true. So James is gonna unpack this for us by reminding us wherever we are on the social or the economic ladder, and that's everybody here, we're all in different places on that ladder. But this is what James is gonna remind us of is that the gospel has freed us from the false self we are tempted to create for ourselves in our poverty and in our wealth. And hopefully we're gonna see what good news this is for all of us as we come into the warehouse this morning, what equity there is for all of us before the Lord. So once again, James provides perspectives grounded in godly wisdom. So let's pick up in verse nine here, chapter one. This is what he says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So we're going to stop there, and that is the word of the Lord for us. So the first perspective that James gives us is for the lowly brother to understand that their lack of money and possessions have nothing to do with God's love and care and remembrance for them. He doesn't just say those who are lowly, but he says lowly brother. These are brothers and sisters. They're known by God. They're loved by Christ. They're filled with the Spirit. So having less money and possessions and friends didn't mean that these Jewish Christians who James is writing this letter to received any less of the spiritual blessings that God gives to those who are in Christ. There is no parallel between the two. It's a foolish thing for us to try to make a parallel between what we have and what God bestows upon us based on that. The poor need to see their true wealth. And that's our first point of the day, our first perspective. The poor need to see their true wealth. This is hard for us. We might intellectually go, no, I get that. But even Jesus' disciples thought that those with money and possessions were more blessed by God and therefore had more access to him than somebody who didn't. And what we see in the book of Luke is that Jesus just refuted that way 
of thinking. In fact, he says this. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He wasn't saying it's impossible that if you just have a few more dollars in the bank that it's just going to be so much like you have twice as many challenges and you have to jump through 26 other hoops for the gospel to change your heart. No, it just says that there is barriers there. There are some dangers there that make it harder for someone who has wealth and the illusion that wealth brings to get to God. Maybe you are someone who is surrounded by people and maybe has always been surrounded by people who have more economic or social abundance than you. What a gracious thing to remember that in Christ Jesus you have an equity of riches and spiritual blessings that can never be taken away. What an encouragement to know that you are not thought of less or thought less of by Jesus. Ephesians 1.3 reminds us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So if you are in Christ, it's because you were chosen by God to receive, be a recipient of all the spiritual blessings that he has given to Jesus, even if it doesn't turn out that way materially for you on earth. What a sober reminder at the same time for those of us with more wealth and possessions to remember too. So James wants the economically or the socially disadvantaged person to do this, to see their advantage, that their lowliness before the Lord keeps them more open in some ways to the loveliness of Christ. They don't have those barriers that money and wealth can place before us. Those who find themselves in a more lowly situation, which might be some of you, might be tempted, you might be tempted to doubt God's favor upon your life because you look around and you just think, God hasn't blessed me in some of these areas. And yet James is saying, be glad instead and boast in the Lord for what he has in store for you. He is saying, see your true wealth. Have eyes for what really is. And then likewise, the rich need to understand, like the poor, that wealth is not what brings a person favor with God. It's a mindset that we're all in danger of adopting, actually. Man, I'm doing well, right? I'm excelling in my career. I own a nice house. I have some acreage. I got myself one of those sweet John Deere riding mowers. You know, things are going well. I still don't have one of those. James wants us to see that to spend our time pursuing wealth is a fool's errand. Why? Well, he gives us an analogy in verses 10 through 11. He says, 
Because like a flower of the grass, somebody who pursues wealth at the expense of seeing their true wealth will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flower, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So like a flower in the scorching sun, those who pursue wealth will fade away. Notice he doesn't say those with wealth. He says those who pursue wealth will fade away, meaning they're exposed to the elements and the elements devour them and prove how fragile they really are. So it's not necessarily that someone has possessions, that someone has wealth, but again, James is reaching a little bit deeper into this pursuit of those things as a means to find your value and your identity and your worth. And James says that is not wise thinking because all of these things, like a flower in the field, can just evaporate just like that. Jesus tells us there's a different kind of richness we need to pursue. Let's go back to the book of Luke, one of the four Gospels. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke 12. And Jesus tells us this crazy parable called the parable of the rich fool in verse 13. And this is what he says in Luke 12. He says, someone in the crowd said to him, um, you know what, I'm going to skip that and I'm going to move right up to uh, 16. And he said, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that's a little sobering for us. What this shows us is that a pursuit of riches causes a person to, number one, forget who they really are, which are fragile people in desperate need of God's grace because we don't know how many seconds, minutes, hours, days, and years God has given us on this earth. That's called a good sobriety to keep that in check. And then secondly, it causes a person to forget the poor, to forget those around you who don't have as much as you too, which who God has called us to remember and to care for and not sort of push into the margins of our society and our church and our community and our neighborhood because maybe they don't have or they can't afford the kind of lifestyle that we have. Some of you might think, I would never do that, and yet we do that. They're not like me enough. I don't know that I can relate to them. I dress differently than they do. They drive a car that like was manufactured before I was born. So that parable carries a warning for us. Now, 
James or Jesus never says being wealthy is wrong. I keep emphasizing that because I want us to really have some clarity on that. And by the way, neither does Paul, who tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, he said, for the love of money, Paul tells Timothy, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul is echoing James here in that he's saying it's this love and craving of money, this pursuit that can produce a shipwrecked faith. James is saying here, and this is my second point, that the rich need to see their true poverty in the Lord. Just like the poor need to see their true wealth, the rich need to see their true poverty in the Lord. Here's my question. Has anybody ever told you that your pursuit of money and possessions might be the very thing that's keeping you in a state of spiritual unwellness? Because it's become an all-consuming, maybe even very subtle and subconscious drive in your life. James is saying that those who are wealthy need to see themselves how they truly are before the Lord, which is poor, which is needy. And by the way, this really bummed out this guy that's called the rich young ruler in the book of Mark who approached Jesus. Let's turn to Mark. We're already in Luke. One book to your left, Mark 10. Listen what happened to this dude, the rich young ruler in Mark 10, picking up in verse 17. It tells us a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And then verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This was a brother that did not see himself as he truly was, which is that he put his money and possessions, he put his own material wealth in front of the spiritual health that he was lacking in Christ. In fact, he was breaking the first commandment and that's what Jesus was leading him back to, which was having no other gods before him. And he was basically saying, actually, it's this pursuit of wealth has become my functional God because he didn't follow Jesus, but he walked away sad and sorrowful for what Jesus was calling him to give up. And then earlier in Mark 8, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's like somebody reasoning with you, right? Have you ever had somebody just pleading with you and just going, like, help me here. Help me understand. What does it profit a man to gain the whole, you have the whole world, but you lose your soul? For what? 90 years versus eternity? He says this, Jesus says, for what can man give in return to his soul? What can you earn in return? 
How much stuff can you acquire that's going to compensate for the lostness of a soul? Nothing. James ends in verse 12 here with some encouragement. I'm going to turn back to James. And he says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So God's promises are applied equally to both the rich and the poor if they don't find their life and their identity and their truth in what they have or don't have. James gives us possibly good news here. And he does it in the form of this sort of beatitude um, that does this. It frees both the wealthy and the poor from this enslaving pursuit of money and possessions. He's leading us to the way of wisdom. And he's doing it by guarding us against the tendency of creating a false self from wealth or poverty. He's saying, look, pursue lasting things. And whatever material wealth God has given you in this life, don't base your worth and identity on it. Also, whatever material worth God has withheld from you in this life, don't spend your life seeking more because you think somehow this will prove God's love and care for you. Wisdom leads us to a different pursuit, which is seeking righteousness in Christ which is spiritual richness that leads to, oddly enough, a poverty of spirit. It's this pursuit that gives us eyes to see abundance in its truest form, which is the love and forgiveness of Jesus, which, by the way, can never be taken away and which never fades. Matthew 6.33, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things they'll be added to you. He's not certainly not saying don't work and don't get out there and earn a living and don't get out there and try to acquire things that are going to be good for you and help you and benefit your family and your neighbors. No, Scripture would tell us that that's something we need to go after. Again, the point isn't the money. The point is the condition of our hearts and how we acquire the money that we need and that God blesses us with. James wants us to have eyes to see what we actually have when we have Christ. In fact, Peter echoes James here when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is where it gets good to an inheritance that is Sorry, the other part was good too. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Get the stuff that's not going to go away, is what he's saying. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's preserved. God preserves the riches of Christ for you. So for those who are steadfast, James is saying, and endure through the trials that money and possessions can bring, and they do bring, and they are bringing you right now, we can look forward to something more significant. We can look forward to a crown of life, James says, 
which God has promised to all those who love and who pursue him. Are we going to love and pursue him perfectly? Is is our minds and our hearts never going to tilt towards money? No. That's where his grace and mercy comes in. That's why when we read this, we don't fall into despair, but we're kind of caught in some of these places and ways that we easily turn to. So here's what James is telling us in summary, what this wisdom leads us to. The first thing is wisdom leads us to keeping a kingdom mindset. That's what this passage is leading us to, keeping a kingdom mindset. We are empire builders by birth. That's what we do. We build pocket-sized kingdoms to rule over. It's just, it's just our natural tendency. It's what all of y'all snap back to. So it's natural, by the way, that money and possessions would be what gives our little kingdoms value, right? The problem is that these empires we build are already in a state of disrepair even as we are building them. 1 John 2.15 reminds us, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, John tells us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And then he says this, and the world is passing away. Those things are fading like flowers in the sun. Along with its desires, he says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The message here is that we need to be very careful about the loves and desires of our heart because they're the indicator of what's taking our heart most captive. You hear what I'm saying? A good exercise for us, not a super fun one, but a good exercise for us would be to notice what our mind tends to default to. What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? What's the thing that's on your mind when you're going to bed at night? What's the thing that your mind finds that you most snap back to? What dream is it? What thing? What hope? What fantasy? Well, that's an indicator, or it could be an indicator for us that we are building our own kingdoms and we don't have a kingdom mindset that is looking to expand what God has given to us. Secondly, wisdom leads us to remembering the richer riches that we already have. So my dad um, was just a ridiculous human being. And every year, I've I've, I've told this story, um, but every year, around uh, in November, he would say, all right, guys, here's the deal. If you guys will just wait until Groundhog's Day for Christmas, you will get twice as many gifts because we'll hit all those after Christmas sales. So if you guys can just wait, I'm telling you right now, you'll get twice as much stuff. I mean, a lot of morality issues with all of that. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't recommend you guys like teaching your kids in that way, right? We'll, we deal with that another time, right? I'm not condoning that. That's what he said to us. That's how he trained us up in the Lord, right? Um, here's the thing. We never took him up on the offer, right? We didn't want to wait for a better Christmas. We wanted our toys now. 
It's an analogy that breaks down quickly. Let's just stop right there, right? But the point is that we have riches today in Christ that will find their fulfillment in the future, but it's like we have them now. But when we pursue material wealth and possessions, this is what's happening in our hearts. We're believing that the fraction we have now is better than the fulfillment we will have then. And that fraction, in reality, man, it's barely a fragment is what it is. It's kind of like treating an appetizer like a main course, right? I mean, you just keep eating those cheesy pretzels, right? They're good, but man, they're, they're not the main course. They're not fresh lobster from Maine, right? They're not a filet. Remember the richer riches you already have in Christ. It doesn't mean your possessions are inherently bad. In fact, let me say this. They're given to you by God as a foretaste of the glory that is to come. They're kind of like the trailer to a movie that you can't wait to see. Think of how much you'd miss out on if all you did was watch movie trailers, but you never saw the actual movie. Money and possessions end up obscuring the richer riches that you already have in Jesus Christ, which then creates a false self in the process, thinking of yourself and others as something that you're not before the face of the Lord. And then finally, wisdom leads us to pursuing a poverty of spirit. The kingdom of God is what's also sometimes referred to as the upside down kingdom. What that means is that it's not the richest, the wealthiest, the most beautiful, talented people who comprise it. It's those in actuality who are the poor in spirit. It's those who see themselves for the needy and fragile people that they really are. These are the people that have stopped putting on a false self by believing possessions are the answer and have instead put their trust in this person, in a Jewish carpenter that was despised by men, in a man who came from a poor family who was nothing to look at by earthly standards and didn't even have a place to live throughout the entirety of his ministry. Jesus humbled himself so that we wouldn't have to live and die under the damning weight of a false self. A false self that tells us our worth is bound up in what we own. Our worth is not in what we own. We're going to sing about that here in a minute but it's in the one who bought us with a price, who we are now his possession. The problem with wealth and poverty is that they threaten us with a false sense of self. The good news for us today is that Jesus came to redeem our humanity. He came to redeem our humanity, so we pray for, we pursue a deeper poverty of spirit because this is where our true self lies. And by the way, that's also where Jesus resides. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a picture of the humble-hearted wisdom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we thank you that our wealth is not in what we own, but it is found in Christ. And we thank you for the promise of this crown of life that is waiting for us who remain steadfast under trial. Lord, we pray that our hearts wouldn't be so taken and consumed by things, for this is how the world lives. And Lord, instead, we want to be a community that is decidedly countercultural. So God, open up our hearts to the beautiful truth of the riches of Christ that come to us and that we are going to partake of now. And Lord, also give us grace and mercy, Lord, as these are going to be very difficult things for us to process and to work through and to be honest about, especially if they have that kind of hold in our life. So Lord, thank you for being good to us this morning. Thanks for revealing things to us that we need to hear and that you've given us patience and mercy and forbearance, Lord, as we find a deeper affection in you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.